Now, our church family has been taking the last several weeks, and we've been studying a series on forgiveness, getting rid of the baggage. And as we've studied this series, we have seen some very crucial teachings from God's Word about this topic, a heavy topic of forgiveness. One of the areas that we studied was the clear mandate that God said, in order for me to give forgiveness to you, you must be willing to extend forgiveness to others, a very clear teaching in the New Testament. A couple of weeks ago, we studied Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and in the book of Colossians, he talked about a new way of living. When we become a follower of Jesus Christ, we become a believer in Him, and He becomes our Lord and Savior, there is a completely new way that we live. A transformation has happened. And within that text, we saw that everything was surrounding a key thought that when we become a follower of Christ, we are willing to forgive those who have wronged us those who have done evil against us. And then last week, we studied 2 Corinthians. We looked at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe, and we saw Paul's heart writing to this church, these followers of God, and reminding them that they must extend forgiveness to a fallen brother, somebody who had done wrong, somebody who outwardly, publicly, and viciously had attacked Paul and his character. And the issue was addressed in the local church. It was punished, and now they had to be willing to extend forgiveness to the one who was pleading uh, for that repentance. And so today now we study again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We see a new text from our study together about this church, the church that was planted from Paul, recorded in Acts chapter 18. When Paul moved on from Corinth, he found word or heard word that the church was not doing well at all. And so he addressed some issues very boldly, and the church then handled those issues. And now he writes this letter that we know as 2 Corinthians and as he writes this letter, he's building the relationship again. He wants the believers at Corinth to remember that he loves them dearly and wants to partner with them. Does not want to extend grief or anguish, but rather to bring a sense of relief and newness. And so he writes this letter. And the common bond that we see in this passage in First Corinth or Second Corinthians chapter five is the love of Christ. And and so that's where I want us to see in verse number seventeen. He says, therefore, if many, any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When we look at this passage of Scripture, we can't help but jump back to the verse 14, because verse 11 through 16 is the motivation of the love of Christ. And it says in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth or motivates us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we all dead. We were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should be henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Today, let's look at this thought of forgiveness. For the love of Christ be 
reconciled. Father, we ask for your guidance this morning through this text. Allow us to be able to hear from you your message. Please keep us from being sidetracked and derailed and distracted, but help us to focus in and hone in on what you want us to hear and to know. May we be attentive to your word and open. May, Lord, you use this passage to change us and to convict us. We want to grow to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. For we ask this in his holy and precious name. Amen. One of the most important passages of Christ's substitutionary death is recorded here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The substitutionary death that he did in the place of us as sinners. And the pagans of the New Testament day, they were following their gods that were either hostile, so therefore they demanded appeasement for sin, or on the other side of the spectrum, they were following pagan gods who were very indifferent and would have to be aroused through noise of worship and prayers. But we know that our God, Jehovah, is neither hostile nor indifferent. He is certainly not slumbering. He is by nature a Savior, ready to forgive and reconcile. Now notice in verse 14 again, because we read that verse, and it's important that we see that He died that we might die. In Galatians 2.20, Paul would write it this way, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless... I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The truth is described in Romans 6, if you have time sometime to read Romans 6 and study the rich context that is there. The result of this death is that sin is rendered powerless. Sin is powerless in the believer's life. We have been changed and set apart, and now we are striving to become more like Jesus Christ, and we have been given that amazing grace which sets us apart from that. So this is fueled by the love of Christ. And then notice in verse 15, so not only did he die that we might die, but he died that we might live. Romans 6, 4, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. Two weeks ago, we had the privilege of baptizing five. And when we baptize them, we say that we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life, an identification that says, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am consecrated and set apart to follow and to worship him alone. And so that is so crucial, this positive aspect of our identity with Jesus Christ. He, we not only died with Him, but we also raised with Him that we might walk in this newness of life. And so here is this great news. The greatest news is that the Bible tells us that God justifies the ungodly and that He covers their transgressions or their sins. He refuses to take their misdeeds into account, and he declares them righteous, completely forgiving their sins. And so you can see why the gospel is called the good news, because it just doesn't make sense of why a holy and amazing just God would send his son Jesus to become the sin for us. Now, this holy God 
we may say, how can a holy God forgive and extend this forgiveness to a sinner without breaking his own word when he swore that he would punish every transgression? So the answer is that God made his son Jesus Christ to be the compensation or the atonement for our sin. That's why we say that this reconciliation or this this forgiveness is because of or for the love of Christ. In verse number 17, the love of Christ transforms by forgiveness. See it again. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. This transformation is a beautiful thing. And why do we find that God's forgiveness is so hard to comprehend? It's, it's so hard to understand. And I believe it's because many times we struggle firsthand with the ability to extend our own forgiveness to somebody who has wronged us. And we know the sin that we have done to wrong the Heavenly Father. How in the world does He extend forgiveness to us? Sometimes we find it impossible to envision the Almighty God as anything more than just some stern and unforgiving being. And then on the other side of things, some people only look at God as being too merciful or saying that He is completely permissive so that no sinner has anything to worry about. And both sides are completely wrong. These are misconceptions. For us to look at the Almighty God as being stern and unforgiving being or to say that He is so merciful that as a sinner I have nothing to fear and nothing to worry about, we've misconstrued, we've missed it. And so here the truth and reality is is that these realities of, of the divine forgiveness says a payment had to be paid, something had to happen. This verse tells us that those who love or those who are in Christ as repentant followers who are completely in Him as Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we are defined as a new creature, a new creation. This coincides with what Paul would write about in Ephesians chapter 4 and Colossians chapter 3 when he would call us a new creature, a new creation. This is putting off, this is being renewed in the spirit of our mind, and this is a putting on. It is being covered by God's grace. It is this transformation that happens. And what I love about the word transformation, it is so different than being restored or being renovated. A a renovation gives us the word for repair. And as you study the original language of the Greek, you find that the word new, N-E-W, it can have two different meanings in the Greek. One is to be renovated or repaired. So we would say after a hard renovation project, as we're getting ready to do back here. By the way, the ladies' restroom, new tile has gone in this week. They're waiting on the cabinets and the partitions. They'll finish that up. May 14th, we'll demo the whole lobby. This will become our new entry point for a couple of weeks. All these pews will be moved out. This will become a makeshift lobby. So all of that is a part of a renovation project. We can say, look at the new and improved ladies' restroom. And we say, wow, that is super nice. But that is totally different from what this word newness is actually referring to because this word new is in the is in the sense of a fresh existence natalie and i had the opportunity yesterday to go to one of the new homes here in the area that our general contractor for the church project jasper construction scott paul and uh, his part business partner jason they won five awards for the parade of homes at the house just right up here on uh, on one of these roads here not too far And so we thought, well, this will be funny. He invited us. He said, hey, come by, look at the house, walk through, and uh, meet some of our friends. So we walked through. 
And when we saw the lot, we rem- I remember seeing that lot. It had trees everywhere. It was woods. And now we're walking into this beautiful home, the five awards they won. We walked into this bathroom that was not renovated. It was completely new. It won the best bathroom, I guess, best master bathroom. I said, yeah, I'd like to have this in my office. This would be really sweet. I don't think we can get it, but at least I'd like it. So. But now when we look at that, we say that they, they have the best kitchen or the best master bathroom, and this is because it is a newness. It's a something that is a new existence, and this is the word that describes us as Christians. We're not the new and improved Peter Grant. I am the completely new in existence Peter Grant because of what Jesus Christ has done through his finished work on the cross. And so I'm not a renovation. I am now become something of new existence. The old is passed away, the renewing of my mind, and now this putting on is a new existence, a new creation. This same theological expression is incorporated all through the New Testament. When we think of the new creation here in 2 Corinthians 5, the new birth in John chapter 3, the new man in Ephesians 2, Colossians 3, the new commandment, John 13, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, and the new life in Romans chapter 6, and a a variety of other texts here. So how does this newness come? Well, it comes because this transformation happens through the forgiveness of God in our life. This transformation happens through his extension of forgiveness to us. Now, don't take trips down the past to wallow in your sin. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to cripple you. And what I wrote here is that your past will paralyze you. When you go down the road of your past, it paralyzes you from moving forward. It keeps you from pressing on. We have seen two pastors today who, when we look at the history and the past, these were men who were taking steps forward and preparing for tomorrow. And as they cast vision and prepared for tomorrow, here we are some 45, 50 years later, still doing our very best to make an impact in our community. Still as God's church, seeing people saved, baptized, and discipled, joining the church in unity of spirit and unity of mind, centered around one name of Jesus Christ, one gospel message of love, and pursuing to live a life of holiness set apart from the world. And that's because we will not be paralyzed from the past mistakes. We will move forward together. But you know what? Also in the present, in the present, we cannot be impaired by what's taking place. We cannot say that I can't see tomorrow or I can't see what is next or I can't see God's work or I can't see anything positive because if we find our sin to be paralyzing us in the past or impairing us in the future when we move or in the present, when we move to the future, it's going to continue to torment us. And we think, I'm too anxious, full of anxiety. I I don't want tomorrow to happen. Now, for some of our students going to school tomorrow, hey, I'm I'm with you. I understand. I remember those days. Sunday nights were the worst. Bailey, as a nine-year-old, she's actually getting there already. I'm like, girl, you got a long way to go. You know, I know Sunday night, but you're thinking, man, the weekend's over and school in the morning. Okay, I'm rabbit trailing. Here we go. Continue on. (laughs) Never take your eyes off of the incredible work of the cross. You have been transformed by forgiveness, so now live in that victory. Verse number 18, 19, and 20, we see that the love of Christ reconciles with peace. The main idea in these verses is true reconciliation. Paul makes it clear that this reconciliation is initiated and obtained 
not on our behalf or on our own doing, but only by the work of God, completely by God. We contribute nothing of any merit on our own behalf that we can do to aid in the process of God reconciling us to himself. That's where many people get off track because we struggle with rebellion. We, as a man, are the enemy of God and completely out of fellowship with him. We could never do enough to accomplish satisfaction on the demand of God's part and God's perfect righteousness. Any sinner who thinks he deserves or has earned God's favor only increases his sin with self-righteousness. There are thousands, if not millions, of people who think they can do enough to find the satisfaction of God on their life, earning the merit, earning the favor. So people will live their life working so hard. Just last week, I met an individual and having conversation with them about their eternity in Jesus Christ. And I said, if you go to heaven, I mean, if you die, do you know you're going to go to heaven? They say, I think it'll all work out in the end. I think it'll all work out because I'm a good husband, I'm a good dad, and I'm a good worker, and I'm kind, and I'm moral. And when it's all said and done, it should outweigh the bad, won't it? And I said, dear friend, it's only through Jesus Christ that you will find your redemption. It's only through Jesus that you will find your hope and security. And the sad thing is that there are thousands of people sitting in a church just like this, maybe even here today, who are having a false sense of security about the next life and all eternity because they've been in church all their life. They've given to the poor in charities. They've done everything they can to be kind and moral but they've never repented of their sins to an almighty God and taken his reconciliation so that they might be a new creation in Jesus Christ. A lot of people are banking on renovation. A lot of people are saying, I'm doing a lot of work on this whole life. I've got 50 years in it. I've got 60 years in it. And I've done a whole lot of work to make it happen. It's going to work out in the end. And it's not about our work or earning favor or on our merit it's about only God and His grace through Jesus Christ. So any sinner who thinks this way is so deceived. God initiated this ministry of reconcilia and reconciliation even though He is the innocent party in the estranged relationship. He reconciled us to Himself and we know that we did not deserve that reconciliation. Every man-made religion out there that has ever been invented through the history of time it has taught that there is something the sinner must do in order to appease God. But we find so different in our scriptures, this reconciliation comes as a gift from God. Biblical Christianity teaches how God has supplied a, a substitute on man's behalf to cover our sins and to satisfy the price for forgiveness. The Philippian jailer looked at Paul and Silas and said, what must I do to be saved? And they responded and said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul wrote this, And having made peace through the blood of his cross. So reconciling with peace. The cross certainly would not have been a peaceful environment. The torment that our Savior faced, the gruesome reality of what he suffered and died and went through, would have been something far greater than a mind of peace. 
But the result of the cross is having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, then watch this. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. Romans 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a herald, without a messenger, without a proclaimer? And that's where you and I come into play. As the Bible tells us, we are ambassadors. We are the mouthpiece. We are the herald. We are the preacher. We are the the messenger to give this good news. Paul sees that he serves in a foreign land as an ambassador to the king. And the ambassador does not speak to please his audience, but rather to please the king who sent him. The ambassador does not speak in his own authority. His own opinions or demands mean very little. He simply says what he has been commissioned to say. An ambassador is a messenger. He's also a representative. And in the honor and reputation of his country, he gives and proclaims the message the king has given. Ephesians 6.15 tells all of us as believers in Christ, when we put on the whole armor of God, that we would have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And so this peace that reconciles, we have to be the messengers. In verse 21, the love of Christ pardons by grace. Nothing is more characteristic of divine grace than forgiveness. In this verse, Paul summarizes the heart of the gospel. And he brings verses 18, 19, and 20 to a peak. And he explains how sinners can be reconciled to God Through Jesus Christ. This verse expresses the doctrine of imputation and substitution like no other single verse in Scripture. This word imputation comes up in verse number 19. He says, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And then in verse 20, he tells us that our sin goes on him and that his righteousness goes on us. This word impute or imputation is a a legal term. To impute guilt onto someone is to assign guilt to that person's account. And likewise, to impute someone as being righteous is to simply reckon them, that person, to be righteous. Now, it's very important for us to understand, understand this, that the guilt and righteousness that is imputed is completely objective in the reality. Because a person whom guilt is imputed on is not thereby actually made guilty in the real sense, but he is accounted as guilty in the legal sense. Jesus was not a sinner, even on the cross. On the cross, the Father treated him as if he were a sinner, yet all the while sin was outside of Jesus, not inside him, and it was not a part of his nature as it is for us. So when the verse tells us that he hath made him to be sin for us, Jesus did not become a sinner on our account. 
Jesus became that sin, but he was not the sin. It was imputed onto him. Our guilt was put onto him. His righteousness was put onto us. Understand, he's not a sinner. We are not naturally righteous. So the imputation had to happen. It had to be taken away and placed on in the legal sense of guilt. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, Christ was not guilty and he could not be made guilty. But he was treated as if he were guilty because he willed to stand in the place of the guilty. Yea, he was not only treated as a sinner, but he was treated as if he had been in sin itself in the abstract. This is an amazing utterance. The sinless one was made to be sin. Note well that he, God, made him to be sin. This is the work of God himself. It is not man's doing. It is not anything that just perchance happened. But this was an act of God, a choice that God made to do. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as well were in perfect cooperation in the work on the cross. It was not a, it was not a default. Oh, Jesus is dying on the cross. Oh no, something has happened and he has become a sinner. That was not the plan. God was in complete control. It was his choice that he made his son Jesus Christ to be sin on our account. And so this means that the work of atonement on the cross was the work of God. Jesus took our sin, but he gave us his righteousness. <laughs> it's a tremendous exchange, all prompted by the love of God for us, pardoned by grace. H.A. Ironside told a story when he was visiting in South Texas. He had the opportunity to visit a sheep ranch. While he was there, he spotted what he thought was a two-headed lamb. He asked the foreman of the ranch, he said, why in the world does that lamb have two heads? The foreman smiled and laughed and said, you're a city slicker, aren't you? Well, let me explain what we did. The other day, we had two sheep who gave birth to two lambs. One of the sheep died in childbirth, and one of the lambs died as well. We took the living lamb and put it in the pen with the living sheep to see if she would nurse. She smelled of the lamb and walked away. It wasn't her own. Ironside asked, well, what did you do? Well, we took the coat off of the dead lamb and wrapped it around the living one and put it back in the pen. When the mother smelled the blood of her very own lamb, she accepted the little lamb and began to nurse. Dr. Irons said with amazement in his voice, thank you for sharing with me the greatest picture of the cross I have ever seen. For without Christ, I am hopeless for eternity. God will not accept me into heaven on my own merit and my own works. But when I stand before him, covered in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, he accepts me and allows me to be a part of his family. Jesus took on our sin that we might have his righteousness. Today, we celebrate for the love of Christ be reconciled. Father, we thank you for your saving grace. And I pray today that as followers and believers in you, that we would be recharged and excited about that privilege and mission to be a messenger of that good news. 
May we find in our own heart the, the, the level of gratitude and amazement for what you have done. Not to renovate us, but to put us as a new creation. I thank you for that truth. Father, if there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their very own personal Savior, we ask you to work in their heart today. Father, I thank you for the love that you have extended to all who will believe. Thank you for those who will call upon the name of the Lord, that your salvation is for them. So may we find it today to celebrate your forgiveness and newness of life, but for some to find the conviction in their heart that says, I need that relationship in Jesus. We'll pray this in your son Jesus, in his name. Amen.